morning, if uh, you got to join us down at the beach, it was just absolutely gorgeous. Uh, as I was leaving, after we'd finished packing up, a huge eagle swooped right by, kind of tipped his wings. I was like, hey, how's it going? It was just a gorgeous morning. Phenomenal turnout, phenomenal participation from all the churches in town. And it kind of felt like, yay, we haven't been allowed to gather for so long. It is so fun to be back together. And uh, a little bit along the same lines, after church this morning, uh, we have not been able to have coffee time and just hang out, uh, but we get to do that this morning as the regulations ease, and so there will be coffee out there, uh, there will be hot cross buns fresh from our Old Town Bakery, and they are just amazing, so please stay. Uh, play, stay, have a bun, have a cup of coffee, and chit-chat after the service. Well, I am a dad of two wonderful girls, and Callista and Malia, it's a privilege to be their dad. Uh, And there's some benefits that come with being a father of teenagers, one of which is they don't let you get completely out of date. Uh, They kind of keep you up to speed on what's going on. And uh, so they keep me uh, informed of what the latest little phrases are that teenagers use. And there are a lot of them, I've learned. There are a lot. And uh, half of them are related to texting, and it's kind of its own cool code language. And if you're not in the know, you are uninformed. You are so out of it. I can't believe it. Um, And so one of the phrases, this one isn't brand new. It's probably been around for seven or eight years. Uh, It's the phrase, wait, what? Now, you kind of say this when you initially agree But then it dawns on you, wait a second, I don't agree with that. Or, I said yes, but I don't really understand what I just agreed to. Now, a couple years ago, we were having dinner as a family, and uh, Malia was in grade six at this point, so she says, Mom, what's for dinner? Laurie says, well, I'm I'm making a stir-fry, girls. And and Calista goes, oh, I love stir-fry, thank you. And uh, and. Lori says, well, I actually found this new little product called General So's Chicken. So we're going to try this out, and uh, we're going to have it with our stir-fry. And she says, here, look at the box. And so she gives the girls the box, and they look at it. And with a totally straight face, I look at the girls, and I say, girls, you know who General So was, don't you? They're like, no, who was General So? I said, well, he was a general in the Chinese army in the 10th century. And he was unbelievably creative. He created a brand new kind of catapult that could lob, you know, fireballs at the enemy. I said, but what he was most famous for was using chickens in his army. I said, he put little outfits on them. He put explosives in the outfits. And he would release them into the opposing forces. And they would just go in there and create total chaos as these explosives blew up and all this kind of stuff. And I managed to keep it together and say it all with a straight face. And then they kind of look at me and they go, wait, what? And they're like, dad, it is so lame when you don't tell us the truth. Now, years later, if I say something that's kind of sounds suspect, they go, is this actually the truth? Or is this like a general so's chicken kind of thing? It's a pretty great phrase, though. Wait, what? And it occurred to me as I was in our passage this week, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that there is some verses that when you read them, 
they make you stop and go, wait, what? And those verses begin in verse 17. If you have a print Bible, I encourage you, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's also on the screen. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. We read those and we go, wait a second, Paul. I thought Jesus dying on the cross paid the debt of my sin. But you're saying without the resurrection, my faith is futile. That if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, I'm still stuck in my sins? Is that what you're saying, Paul? How does that work? Bible scholar David Garland is helpful. He explains, he says, If Christ had not been raised, then death's stinger still spears its victims. Its shroud will forever bind them. Sin's wages must be paid, and redemption has been foiled by the last enemy, death. Paul asserts in Romans that Jesus was raised for our justification, which enables us to walk in newness of life. He visualizes the resurrected Christ at the right hand of God, interceding for us against all who would condemn us. But if Christ has not been raised then none of this is true. You see, raising Jesus from the dead is God's giant yes over everything Jesus ever taught, everything Jesus ever claimed about himself. It's the proof that salvation was accomplished, that sin, death, and evil were once and for all defeated. We are not to think of Jesus as a spirit or a ghost after his resurrection. He was embodied. He was raised with a full body. Now it was a changed body that will never grow sick or weak or tired or be susceptible to disease. But it is a body in continuity with the one he had before. People recognize Jesus. And for a whole bunch of really profound reasons, Jesus has retained the scars of the crucifixion on his wrists and in his side. As Professor and author Ross Hastings states, salvation is accomplished in his person on the cross. Salvation is accomplished in his person in the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus was a solid body, not a wispy spirit. And that is so important because any notion where we are just a disembodied spirit that floats around playing a harp on a cloud is not only incorrect, it's actually anti-Christian. And I encourage us to reject it this morning. Resurrection one day for you and I will, just like Jesus, be body, in a body. He's the model we simply get to follow and be like him when he returns and wraps up history. You know, this idea that the soul is somehow permanently separated from the body at death is a Greek idea. It's a Gnostic idea. It's not a Christian one at all. So then the obvious question is, okay, but Jesus hasn't come back yet. So what happens when we die? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.8 tells us, yes, we are fully confident. And 
we would be rather be away from our, these earthly bodies, for then we will be at home with the Lord. So when we die, there is a separation. We get to be with Jesus face to face in heaven, but that is ultimately a temporary thing. Resurrection and a transformed body, a renewed and purified earth is what Revelation pictures. The new heaven, new earth, all coming together as one. And verses 18 and 19 continue Paul's line of argument. He said, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all people most to be pitied. You know, I performed a lot of memorial service, a lot of funerals over the years, and uh, it's a pretty sacred act, and I always try to do my best and, and really minister to the family, and I've done lots of services for people who don't claim to follow Jesus, and I've done lots for Christian people, and both are pretty precious, and I counted a privilege to do both kinds, but it's interesting, all the phrases that I hear at a memorial service or a funeral for w folks who don't know Jesus. They say things like, well, I hope we see Aunt Susie again. Or, well, we hope Aunt Susie is watching over us. And you know, it's interesting, believers in Christ don't say those kind of things at funerals. A believer says, my heart is sad, I'm grieved, but I know Aunt Susie right now is face to face with Jesus. And she is enjoying greater peace and joy than she's ever known. And one day, I will see her again. What makes the difference between the two? Well, it's the resurrection. If God can raise Jesus back from the grave to live evermore, then he can resurrect you and he can resurrect me. So Paul is correct. If there is no resurrection of Jesus then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. But good thing is, that's not where it ends. The best news is yet to come. We'll pick it up in verse 20, down to 23. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die... So in Christ, all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. What an incredible promise. It's a great grace that you and I didn't deserve and we didn't earn. Think about all that it entails. What are the benefits of Jesus rising again? Well, number one, we get eternal life. No more funerals, no more days, months, years of sadness when you lose your friend, your spouse, someone really close to you. Wow, that sounds amazing. Eternal joy. Eternal joy in a body that will never break down, never be injured, never get an illness or a disease. Wow, can you imagine and if you've known anyone in your life that suffered from MS or Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, or has had a spinal injury and they're confined to a wheelchair for years and years and years, it almost must feel like too much goodness to comprehend. And then the benefit of eternal fellowship with God. 
face to face, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mind-blowing. One of my professors in grad school says, you know what? I think in eternity there will be work. I was like, really? Because I was looking forward to a rest. And he said, no, but you're thinking of it wrong. He said, can you imagine work that is completely joy-filled? No deadlines, no hassles, no complication, no fighting, no contracts, no problems. It would just be pure joy. Wow. You know, the whole thing is hard for us to wrap our minds around, but what was it like for the disciples to encounter the risen Jesus and experience grace from Him personally? As we mentioned in communion, 40 days Jesus got to encounter different disciples, different people. And this beautifully done video we're going to watch in a second dramatizes what the interaction was between Jesus and and Peter, when they finally got to meet face to face. Grace is God's unmerited favor for us, his crazy love. And the truth is, many times we struggle understanding it. If you find yourself struggling to understand God's grace, don't beat yourself up. Even the disciples struggled with understanding grace. Jesus, is that you? You're alive, I can't believe you're alive. Okay, I was in the boat and I wasn't catching any fish, okay? But I heard this voice and the voice said, cast your net to the other side. And so I'm thinking, I'm a fisherman, I know what I'm doing, but I'm not catching any fish, you know? And so I throw that net over there and then a gaggle of fish pop into that net and I'm going, this is a total miracle. Who could have done that? I need to know who told me to throw the net to the other side. And boom, I look up and I mean, there is you. You're looking at me on the seashore going, it is I, the Lord, and you're alive. I can't believe you're alive. <laughs> this is awesome. Andrew, get out of the boat, come on. Peter, yeah. do you love me? Yes, I love you. I love you. You're alive. This is so great. Good, and, then feed my sheep. Andrew, get out of the boat. Come on, man. It's him. Peter, Yeah. do you love me? I love you, yes. And I'm so sorry about that rooster clucking. I had no idea what that meant, but I do not. I'm better for it, all right? Okay. Then feed my sheep. Andrew, I'm smiling, but I'm serious. Come on, get out of the boat. It's him. Peter, Yeah. do you love me? Jesus, mere words cannot describe the passion that I have for you. I love you. You know everything. I love you. Good. Good. Then feed my sheep. I didn't even know you had livestock. That is so like you, though. There's something new about you all the time. That's what I love about you. Peter, yeah. do you remember uh, the morning the ladies went to the tomb? Yeah, 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 yeah. We're all in the upper room trying to figure out what to do next, you know, because we thought you were dead. You know, you were dead, you know, and we're trying to figure all that out, you know. And Mary comes running up, and Mary's like saying, beehive, beehive, beehive. And I'm thinking, I'm allergic to bees. Like, keep them out. You know what I'm saying? But as she kept getting closer, I heard her correctly. She was saying, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. And we're going, who's alive, who's alive? And she said, she was at the tomb, and the tomb was empty. And she said that the, there was an angel there. And the angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay, he is risen. And so me and John, we hightailed it down there. And if John says he beat me, he's totally lying, all right? I beat him, FYI, all right, you know? And we get down there and I'm looking in that tomb and it is, it is empty. There's nothing in there, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, what does this mean? What does this mean? And John is right there. John is so good with words. He should write a book. He is so good with words. And John said, don't you get it, Peter? This is everything Jesus said he was going to do, and you did it, and it's done. Let's go. This is so great. Wait, yeah. the angel said what? Uh, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay. He is risen. You've risen. Let's go. This he is said okay. what? Go tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter. 
you said my name. Why did you say my name? Peter, that's grace. No, no, I don't, I don't deserve that because that night people kept coming up to me asking me if I belonged to you, if I was with you, and I kept denying you left and right, all right? No, it'll take me my whole life to make up for what I did. It was unforgivable for no, what I did. No, What I did on the cross was meant to take what is unforgivable and make it forgivable. That's my grace. It's not about you. It's always about me. That's grace, Peter. so beautiful. It's just so human. It will take my whole life to make up for what I did. That is the wiring of the human heart. We try to earn it. And Jesus is saying, you can't. You can't earn it. But I did it for you. So beautiful. We get the benefit. Amen to that. All right, our Next set of verses, beginning in verse 24. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. You know, these verses are awesome news for every human being who has suffered and gone through horrible things. The hope is a rock-solid promise that the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. That means that when Jesus comes back someday, every worldly and demonic power that opposes him will be stopped. Everything that is opposite of the kingdom of God will stop. Every world dictator like Vladimir Putin will be stopped. Stopped from grabbing land and money and power for himself. Every drug-dealing kingpin that rules over a criminal empire that wrecks millions of lives through giving out the poison of drugs will be stopped. Every sick CEO of a corporation that dumps chemical waste into the backyard of an economically poor area and then legally squirms out of any responsibility as people get cancer will be held to account. Every country where its business and its government is structured in such a way that it guarantees a racist system to, be a, to oppress people just because of the color of their skin, will be torn down and dismantled forever. Every evil head of a human trafficking ring will be brought to final and inescapable judgment before a holy, all-powerful God. Verse 25 and 26 state the promise of Jesus so powerfully. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You know, for every person who has lost their spouse due to COVID or cancer or car accident, to be reminded that when Jesus comes back, even death itself will be defeated. That we will be reunited with every loved one who said yes to following Jesus. 
For every person who struggles with mental illness and has plumbed the depths of despair and depression, maybe even getting desperate, wanting to, to end their own life, wow is this good news. It says all enemies will be defeated by Jesus, even extreme depression and mental illness. For every parent grieving the loss of a son or daughter due to drugs and the opioid epidemic, this is good news. It says all enemies will be defeated, even the poisonous evil of drug addiction. For the people of Ukraine living through the absolute hell of war today, loved ones dead or dying, starvation, houses obliterated, jobs lost, country torn apart, they long for peace, for restoration, for things to be renewed, for all the hurt to be undone. And 1 Corinthians 15 promises that when Jesus does indeed return at his second coming, evil will stop and even death itself will be done away with. But here is the hard part, folks. We aren't there yet. We live in the in-between time. The in-between time is actually, appropriately, a time when we are allowed to weep. We are allowed to be sad and frustrated and even mad at the injustice of it all. As a staff, we're reading this great book called Prayer in the Night by Tish Harrison Warren. And Tish grew up in a family that really looked down on any kind of sadness or mourning or grief as nothing but whining and complaining. This is what she writes. She says, it could be worse was a family mantra. Dad would say, I've had worse cuts on my lips and just kept on a-whistling. This became legendary in our family, she says. There was no injury too terrible not to invoke Dad's call to keep on whistling. Broken bones, accidents, surgery. Now she says, in fairness, I don't think all that's all, all bad. In a culture that's increasingly committed to nursing every grievance, there's deep wisdom in being able to name what is right and whole about life, to keep moving forward despite obstacles, to have a wider perspective, to look hardship in the eye and laugh. But the dark side of this resistance to grief is that we do not learn to grieve the ordinary suffering and loss, the commonplace but nonetheless heavy burdens we each carry. As long as anyone had it worse, which is always I felt I didn't have permission to be sad, to weep, or to mourn. You know, Easter Sunday is an appropriate moment to give myself, to give all of us here, everyone watching online, permission to mourn for the bad that we have done, the bad things that have happened to us. While we stand on the rock-solid hope, the resurrection of Jesus, the greatest miracle in all of history, on one side of us, and Jesus' promise of his coming back someday at his return on the other, we acknowledge that we live in the in-between time. Tish is helpful again when she says, feeling sadness is the cost of being emotionally alive. It's the cost even of holiness. Christians have to let ourselves be people who mourn. It's part of the deal. It's a defining characteristic of what Jesus called blessed. Christians have a word for this action. It's called lament. And in fact, God has given us a whole book in the Bible, the book of Psalms, that contains a lot of lament. 
One example is Psalm chapter 22. This is what it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Jesus actually quoted those words on the cross. And in fact, a few verses later in Psalm 22, it actually becomes a prophecy in detailed description given over a thousand years before Jesus hung on the cross. It says in verse 16, Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. The Gospel of Luke tells us that when Jesus died, the sun stopped shining. Darkness came over the land from noon until 3 p.m. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split. The Gospel of Mark records Jesus' cry of sadness, grief and pain and dereliction on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, God the Father grieved the death of His one and only Son. God Himself took time to grieve. He is not a stranger to the weight of heartbreak and horror, to the ache of swollen eyes that have cried so long they've run out of tears. He did not numb Himself or downplay the losses. He never gave a pat answer. God was and remains shockingly, emotionally alive. And in the midst of all that lament and all that grieving and that loss comes the realization of truth and hope. And the centurions and the soldiers with him who were at the foot of the cross saw all these things happen at the death of Jesus. They were terrified and exclaimed this amazing phrase, Surely he was the Son of God. You know, the wonderful thing about Christian lament is that it's really realistic. It fully acknowledges the pain and, and suffering in this world, yet it is based on and looks forward to the glory of the resurrected Jesus returning in all of his power and majesty. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. It is good and right and appropriate this Easter to take time to grieve. Sadness in your life, my life, the world. But it always gives way to celebration. But Christ has indeed been raised. And that central fact in the middle of history changes everything in the past and everything in the future. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Amen? Fernando, come and pray for us.